Well, we've introduced this, this theme of a vision of practice and pointing us to what I called an independence from compulsions, independence from views, independence from self-concern. And those are really the three fields of experience that we tend to personalize. Right? We personalize our compulsions or views, uh, our compulsions or desires called what I want. A lot of our life energy and time and uh, interest is taken up with what I want and don't want. And we personalize our views and that whole realm of mind activity that's called what I think. And then all the self-concern that is gets personalized called um, who I think, who I am. And much of our life is rather busy, consciously or often actually rather unconsciously, with what I want or don't want, what I think and don't think, and who I am or take myself to be. And um, you know that term narcissism? It's usually used in psychological cases. It's used for a kind of extreme version. If, if one is accused of being a narcissist, it sounds like some terrible thing to be. But it sounds like a pretty accurate description of human beings, really. And we're, we're all kind of rather taken up with our own self-reflections. Busy trying to reflect ourselves back to ourselves in a way that will make us feel okay. Busy trying to get some reflections back from other people that we hope will make us feel okay. And really, if we look closely, we see that much of the time, that's what we're really we're hoping for or worried about or trying to get. Just some sense that we're okay. And yet, those three spheres of activity, even though they are an attempt often to get that, to get what I want, then I'll feel okay. Or to get the right understanding of things, well, then I'll feel okay. To keep telling myself about how I am or how I could be or should be different so that I can be okay. We actually find that those three things engender and reinforce a sense of non-okayness. Right? To be caught in the compulsion of what I want or don't want is to create the sense that this, how things are right now, isn't quite good enough. The inevitable implication or association that I'm not quite good enough. So those are the kind of essential ways we personalize our experience and construct and reinforce our sense, not only of ourselves, but our sense of our life and our kind of trajectory through life. And this afternoon I'd like to touch on those things, but in exploring them actually in a way that initially might seem a little unrelated or abstract. Um, I want to talk about less less personalized experience and more the, the nature of experience and the three fields I'll call time, space and becoming and as I say maybe we may not see the link for a while but maybe let's see how the talk goes <laughs> maybe we'll see the way the world of compulsions and desire is intimately linked to our sense of time that the attempt to get what we want or get rid of what we don't want is actually that which creates the sense of time, of there being some destination to get to in time where I will have what I want or won't have what I don't like. And how our views actually create, to a large extent, our sense of space, of separation, our sense of a world of objects that we have ideas about. And the ways in which our, what we've been calling our self-concern actually create this constant sense of becoming. Becoming is a kind of rather strange word. Bhava, it comes from the translation of the Pali. But it really refers to that sense of 
never feeling arrived, never really feeling at home in ourselves. And we can really sense meditation as the kind of an invitation to be at home with ourselves. And yet, how often, how many moments does that arrival happen? Often what meditation is doing actually is really exposing us to our, the momentum of our becoming. And, and if you're familiar with that word samsara, other than as a perfume or a nightclub. <laughs> what samsara really means is the wheel of becoming. The momentum, we might say, of becoming that's so set up, that drives us along and that you know, gives us so much of our self-sense. So, we'll, we'll back up and maybe those links will become clear somewhere towards the end of the talk. So we back up and just look at time and space. And, you know, time and space seem rather obvious and self-evident, Right? If I say time, we, we, we kind of know what time is. And yet somebody sort of inquired of me with a raised eyebrow earlier today about something I'd said earlier, that in the certain subtlety of attention, that time slows down and space opens up. And might say, what do you mean time slows down? Right? Maybe the batteries are running out on the clock if time's slowing down. But actually... Even in an ordinary sense, we, we, we can taste and know the way time, our perception of time is rather subjective. Right? Well, I'm not talking about the clock. The clock doesn't measure time. A clock's just a thing that goes around, tick, 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 tick. And it's a really helpful device for us to manage to be in the same place at the same time and to manage all kinds of things. But don't mistake the 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 arrangements that we make through synchronizing clocks to be time. We're not interested in ideas about, right? We're interested in the direct perception of and finding out about ourselves and finding out about life, finding out about reality, finding out about our conditioned view of things and finding out about a freer relationship with things by looking at our direct perceptions and actually by honing our direct perceptions so as to be able to look more closely, more skillfully, illuminated by awareness. So when we look at our direct perception of time, we, we know it sometimes it goes fast, sometimes it goes slow. Right? I mean if you'd need an example of that just in here, meditation. Sometimes all kinds of stuff happens at near eternity's pass. And then you sneak a surreptitious look at your watch and, oh my God, only five minutes has gone by. Right? What is that? Other than the clear demonstration of the subjective nature of time. And sometimes if you... If people have been in um, a, an alarming situation, it seems to often happen with car crashes, for example, and maybe you've had a, a situation of some danger or something, where time can appear to slow down dramatically, and one experiences as if in slow motion. Our capacity to experience our uh, our capacity to be with our experience can happen in ways that can be very, very distorting of time. In absorption, time can pass very fast. We say, wow, I didn't notice the time go by. Right? And in other moments, actually when we're really paying attention to mind moments, that's one of the reasons that meditation can sometimes seem to go by very slowly, because we're noticing how much is happening moment by moment. Right? So five minutes in an ordinary way, five minutes of looking at Facebook, 
goes by like that. In fact, it started off as five minutes and then, oh my God, an hour has gone by, right? But five minutes of meditation, when you're looking at thoughts and sensations and you're listening and you're kind of sensing into the, the texture and feel and complexity and vastness and mysteriousness of all the realms of experience that are playing out. And that sense of time really can open up in that kind of way. And the more, we, the, the more quiet we become, the more time opens up, the more we might start, and this is what we'll point to a little bit, to really notice not just the personalized experience, what I want and what I think and who I'm telling myself I am, etc. But we start to actually notice something about the way experience itself forms the way our usual sense of ourself and world and reality forms. In a way, that's where meditation gets really interesting. That's where Dharma practice gets really interesting. When we actually can put down some of our compulsions and our views and our self-concerns that clutter up our mind so much. We're able to look underneath at the fabric of mind, the nature of mind, the fabric of life, the fabric of experience. And similarly with space, you know, just like we have clocks to measure what we call time, we have um, tape measures <laughs> and various right, uh, ways of measuring what we call space. And so we can see how time seems to be something fixed, and yet when we attend to our direct perception, it's much more malleable than that, much more subjective than that. Similarly with space, we say, well, how far is it from here to wherever? That's our measurement. But if we put aside our measurement, we start to experience space in quite different ways. Again, meditations are a field where that can really come alive and sometimes we might sit here and the sound of the crows for example and everyday mind will say oh the crows are uh, over there up in the tree but actually the direct experience feels a certain intimacy with crows where there's the sense of space between has vanished one feels intimate with what everyday mind would say is outside external Similarly, just the sense of spatial relationship with one's own body can change quite a lot. Maybe you've had those kind of perceptions where body might feel very, very small suddenly. Or body might start to feel very, very, very vast. Sometimes when just really attending to grounding your attention in your belly, your belly can start to feel very big and round. It's actually a kind of wonderful feeling, except we've got a lot of cultural conditioning to not like a big round belly, to think there's something wrong. Sometimes someone's rubbing there with concern. Right? And sometimes it might be, we open our eyes, my God, what's happening? And we look down even. Right? Because it feels like we're pregnant. It can feel like a big, great big belly. That's what, you know those Japanese big bullet belly, big, big bellied Buddhas? It's not because all the monks were fat in those days. It's a kind of it's an, a representation of that kind of filled out embelliedness. It's, and if we can get underneath our kind of culturally reinforced anxiety about having a big belly, we can we might start to feel that that it feels like there's a whole world in there. Vast belly. And that, that kind of inner place, which isn't really a place, right, that we're grounding our attention, which we call it, we're calling down in our belly, down in our, the womb, feels like it doesn't really have edges to it sometimes. It feels like the breath is kind of, and the expansion of the breath is just filling out in a rather vast or diffuse or even limitless kind of a way. 
So these and other kinds of perceptions, sometimes body might feel extremely light, for example, or sometimes extremely dense. And these changes in our perception of time and space, which are really quite common, it's, you may not have have a sense of that, but I'm sure many of you have some sense of those different kinds of perceptions. There's nothing particularly special or important about those experiences in themselves, even though sometimes they can be kind of interesting, or um, sometimes we get a little excited even about them, but nothing particularly special or important in themselves. But there is the fact that there is something helpful or important about the way we start to really notice that time and space and mind and reality aren't a particular way. Time and space, self, reality, world are how we perceive them. And we can perceive them in a variety of different ways. And if we're just following the usual track of our habits, if we're just listening to the usual track of our compulsions and our views and our self-concerns, that tends to fix our sense of self and world and time and space and reality in certain ways. And if we never give any, if we never question that, then that those ways of perceiving get so fixed that they that our sense of reality becomes really rather narrow. And that's most people's experience, right? And we live in this kind of agreed-upon sense of reality without actually being able to test it with each other because we can never get inside someone else's experience. But we've got enough of an agreed-upon reality that, for example, we can talk about space and time in a conventional way and manage to meet up at 11 o'clock at a particular place. But then, for whatever reason, maybe because of the trouble that we get from all these compulsions and views and self-concerns, maybe because of a more just kind of existential or um, philosophical kind of interest in what the hell is life? What, what is this being human? What is it to be conscious? For wherever that initial impulse comes from, we start to get really interested in investigating life in the most immediate, interior, alive, direct way that we can. And that's what Dharma practice is, a way of investigating life in that way. And we find, as we kind of let our experience show us what it shows us, as we start to question our usual sense of self, this one over here, and reality, that thing out there, as we start to taste the different ways in which time and space and impressions and experience can form and unform, we, we, kind of, we can start to... Um, yeah, we can start to get underneath that the narrowness of those usual conventions. We can start, as I say, to look at the way experience itself forms. And there are different ways to... Um, I, was gonna, I was going to say to deconstruct that. I don't mean to deconstruct it as a kind of intellectual exercise. But actually different ways, rather it would be better to say that in the slowing down of time and in the opening up of experience different ways we're actually able to perceive directly the mind moments. In different ways we're able to perceive the way experience constructs itself. One of those ways in the, in the Buddhist tradition is called, the Pali word is uh, Paticca Samupada. Translated in as uh, sometimes dependent co-origination or um, other, other similarly multi-syllabic terms. And when I, um, when I met my 
Thai teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was 1990, I think, so towards the end of his life. He was, I think, about 86 then. He was really on fire with teaching about Paticca Samupada. We would, um, like I say, he was, he was in his mid-80s, less energy. So he, liked, he had most energy in the morning, so he would like to teach uh, like five till eight in the morning where his Dharma talks. Right. So if I ramble on for an hour, you've got it light. And we would, we would uh, get up at 3.30 and sit, get up at 3, sit from 3.30 to 4.30 and then walk over from the part of the monastery where we were to where uh, Ajahn's kuti was. It would be dark, of course. And it was very much in the jungle in southern Thailand, near, near Suratani. And then uh, two monks would help Ajahn Buddhadasa out of his kuti early morning, rather stiff, slow moving, and then they would help him onto the seat. And he would pull his legs up very slowly. Oh. And then he would just kind of come alive with these, uh, this, his kind of love of looking at experience and his wish to communicate something of that. And these three-hour Dharma talks would go on just while the jungle, the light, it would start off in the dark and slowly the light would come and the pink of the dawn and all the noises of the jungle would start. And some kind of wonderful um, mirroring of Dharma teachings that Ajahn was giving and Dharma teachings of just life, jungle. The vibrancy of life, naturalness of life, immediacy of life, sensory impact of life. And I was just reflecting um, this afternoon that I haven't spoken about Paticca Samupada for a while. So I thought, okay, it's, uh, I'd explore it a little bit in the light of how I've just led up to it. So, The first, there's several bits, and it's not, I think it's important. It's not really an attempt to say, this is how experience is. It's rather a kind of map for us to make use of as a way to look at experience. So, I think it's helpful to be unconcerned with whether, well, is it, is it actually like this? There's one thing and then there's another thing and there's another thing and then that thing makes that thing happen. Well, actually, when we look, it really it tends to follow the links that I'm going to speak about very closely. But more important than whether it's true in some kind of, of absolute or philosophical way is, is it useful? And I found it to be extraordinarily useful in in looking deeply into and understanding the nature of and freeing up the response to experience. So the first of the significant links is the Pali word pasa, means contact. Right? There is contact. There is just the, the stuff of life happening. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes. Touches, memories, uh, thoughts, feelings. So in the Eastern tradition, we talk about the six senses rather than five in the Western tradition. So mind is equally considered a kind of a sense organ. And in the same way that uh, sights appear to the eyes and um, sounds appear to the ears, so too just you know, impressions appear in the mind in that same way. And actually, we say sounds appear to the ears and sights appear to the eyes, but, but it's, it's much more seamless and whole than that, right? It's not, it doesn't really have the, the, the sense that sights are really in the eyes. They're in awareness. Right? We're very conditioned to this kind of mechanical view, so we can think, oh yes, here are the eyes, look, if I close them, sights stop, if I open them. So common sense tells us that sights come to the eyes. But if we just 
contemplate for a moment, seeing. Notice how far you can see in this room. It's like the end of the room. Look behind me to the Buddha. Is the Buddha in your eye? Where's the Buddha? Where's the Buddha? So we can say, oh, it's in my, we can say it's in the room, right? That's the usual sense of space. Make something outside and we sense a distance. But maybe actually, more the Buddha is here in awareness, here in experience. Everything lands here, right? Sights and sounds and thoughts and impressions, and our feelings, and all that we experience, we experience it all here. And it's very hard to say much about exactly what this here is. So we call it consciousness, or whatever you like. I like to call it here. And we easily get pulled around by our, the sights and sounds and thoughts and impressions, right? the stuff of experience. But we can also attend as we slow down, as we get sensitive, as we uh, look beneath the, all the kind of self-concerns that we are otherwise manufacturing. We can start to just sense the sort of the naturalness of experience. The fact it's quite miraculous, mysterious, wondrous that experience happens. Whatever it is, just the fact the body's walking, you know, you're just contemplating the fact the body walks in the walking meditation. And you know, self-concern says, well, I'm, I'm walking. And our biology education, like common sense, can tell us something about Synapses firing in the brain and making the legs do their thing. But I'm not sure I'm that clever to make synapses fire and uh, instructions zip down from the brain to the legs. Yeah, I just think, wow, body walks. Wow, seeing happens, hearing happens, tasting happens, life happens. And as we actually, if we really just attend sensitively, meditatively, caringly, curiously to that, we start to increasingly start to trust that the process. We start to really feel that, hey, life works. Life works. Sun rises, stars burn, trees grow works. It may not work in accordance with my wishes, but despite what we might like to imagine, we, I'm not actually the most special and important cog in God's cosmic machine. Life isn't set up to work for, in the way exactly I want it. That's the self-concern that gets hold of that. But we start to see that life has a certain kind of mysterious and yet brilliant intelligence to it. Like the way the seasons happen. The way anything in the universe holds together. The way this organism manages to go through, you know, even though it's kind of wearing out, and manages to hold together for any kind of time at all. The fact that we get sick and then we get well again least for a while. The fact that actually even the aging and wrinkling and greying and stiffening up and falling to bits happens in a kind of orderly manner. Even, even the, the fact that even everything decaying actually demonstrates the naturalness, the, the orderliness, the dhammata of experience. And attending to that, the, the, that insight that life works, that life is natural in its unfolding, automatic in its unfolding, 
the fruits of really starting to know and feel and sense that more and more are that we start to relax into it. We start to experience what arises as natural. We start to feel the naturalness of our being. Start to trust and rest into that naturalness. And then, once there's contact, all the contacts of life, whatever is seen, heard, tasted, imagined, etc., has a a particular feel to it or a flavour. It impacts us pleasantly or unpleasantly or neutrally. And so far, so naturally unfolding. Those those flavours aren't inherent, but they impact us in different ways. Not inherent means it's not like you might take something that you think is pleasant. It's not that it's inherently pleasant. I was just in San Francisco last week and uh, uh, training mindfulness teachers and one person gave a really fantastic and very creative and, uh, and at times quite saucy <laughs> uh, teaching on pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience just using the buzz of a mobile phone. I won't tell you the link between the buzzing and the sauciness but we'll leave that alone. But just showing how... What's the buzz of a mobile phone? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? It's not inherent. It depends, right? It depends on all kinds of circumstances. But experience, any experience, impacts us in one or other of those ways. Some experience is pleasant. Some experience is unpleasant. Some experience is neutral. If it's pleasant, we like it. Right? We, re- we know what pleasantness is. We recognize pleasantness. We know what unpleasantness is. Whatever it's linked to, whether it's unpleasant because of the temperature or the density or the associations that we have. And we, we also know what neutral's like, but we tend not to pay it any attention. Right? That's what neutral means. It just doesn't have enough oomph to it. It doesn't have enough pleasantness or unpleasantness to command the attention. The pleasant pulls on the attention. The unpleasant equally pulls on the attention. And the neutral just doesn't pull on the attention. Feel, feel your elbows right now. Right. Pretty neutral. Right. Maybe not if, you're leaning, if you've been leaning on it for half an hour, then it might be unpleasant. But at least, probably most of us right now, neutral. That's why you weren't noticing your elbows, right? Until I say, and even now I'm saying, you're like, yes, yeah, so what? Right? That's neutral sensation. And we can really, we can attend to just that, the, the impact of experience in its pleasant or unpleasant or neutral arising. And why would we do that? Because it's like it, we, it, we grow our range. We grow our comfort zone. We grow our capacity to abide non-reactively. Usually, we're, just, we're pushed and pulled around. And you can, you can notice, what's the habit? What do you normally do with pleasant sensation? You learn to track the, the way compulsion arises. We learn. What do, you, what do you normally do? What's the habit do with unpleasant experience? And we start to find that there's a way to abide that, oh, maybe I don't need to jump to that kind of reactivity. We develop the quality of equanimity as it's usually called. I don't, I don't really like the, the word equanimity because it, it easily suggests a kind of a certain flatness 
sometimes the associations people have, if you're familiar with Dharma tradition and language, equanimity is if we sort of go flat, oh, pleasant, oh, unpleasant. It's like not much going on. Right? As if there's a damping down of the pleasantness or the unpleasantness. But actually not at all. The pleasant continues to be pleasant. Unpleasant continues to be unpleasant. It's not that they flatten out. It's rather that there's, there's a kind of, we grow a spaciousness in which we feel like there's room for experience. That's what I mean when I call it a kind of expanded comfort zone. There's room to just sit here and know that sensation is unpleasant and feel the impulse to make a drama out of that and just not do it. To abide or hang out spaciously with experience. So great freedom. And it's not that we lose the capacity Sometimes the idea or objection that arises is if we're going to lose the capacity either to discern the pleasant from the unpleasant or that we're going to lose the capacity to, to respond like we sometimes really need to, right? to pleasant or unpleasant. We don't lose the capacity. What we lose is the knee-jerk reactivity. Just like when we taste the uh, kind of different ways we can experience space and time, it's not that we lose the capacity to recognize space and time. It's not like some kind of psychedelic soup that we fall into. But we lose the reliance on the habitual, narrow, conditioned view. We, we put down the automatic, frantic, reactive um, yeah, reactions that otherwise come in the blink of an eye. We don't normally notice, right? When experience is moving at its usual pace, we don't notice, oh, contact. Yeah, and then, oh, pleasantness of contact or unpleasantness of contact. And then, oh, the arising of some reactivity. We just notice the smell of lunch. Oh, yes, great, I want some. What's the time? Here we go. And yet, when, we, when we're practicing in the way we are, when we're slowing down in the way we are, we get the opportunity to actually see that experience. Oh, I, I'm really looking forward to lunch. We get to see how it forms. And in that seeing, we develop these you know, liberating qualities, the capacity to know the naturalness of experience, the capacity to, to abide spaciously, the witness of pleasantness. A witness of unpleasantness. And then we start to find we've got some wiggle room. We've got some freedom. We've got some opportunity to actually make an appropriate response or a wise response, a skillful response, a, a clear response. Rather than just making an, a knee-jerk reaction that's being pulled around just by the habit of compulsion. This is where we get to the time and space and uh, becoming part, the desire and views and self-concern part. Contact, pasa, the flavor of experience, vedana, and then next, right, when that's not Clearly seen, tanha. Tanha means grasping. The, the way, and man, you can spend a lot of time observing this stuff. I mean, if that's what our practice is for these days, or for some years, just to notice. I mean, in a way, that's where the whole of Dharma practice really, really, really opens up. Is when we start to notice and track and understand and really explore what we do with the pleasant, what we do with the unpleasant, how it becomes 
something sweet happens, like that same example, smell of lunch. Lovely. So the smell of lunch, just contact. Smell. And then pleasant. Mm. And then if we're abiding there spaciously, we can enjoy that pleasantness. And we might see the arising of, oh, oh, how long till lunch? But it's like, what do I want to do, really? Do I, to abide here spaciously, enjoying the pleasantness of the lunch smell? Or do I want to contract my attention into some kind of, oh, how long till the bell rings? How long till... <laughs> Nobody in their right mind would choose option B. And yet, and yet, the habit is strong. So, like I say, you get to study that. And we see how there we start to create time. Right? Whatever it is, of lunch smell, pleasant, and then I want the pleasant object. And then I start to measure the distance between here and the pleasant object. Whatever it is. And then the energy called the tanha, the grasping, the wanting, the, com- the compulsion towards the object, starts to become the measure of my happiness. Right? When I get that yummy object, then everything will be okay. When the lunch bell rings, nirvana. And I'm sort, of, I'm sort of caricaturing it, but not that much. And that gap that we've made between ourselves and the, uh, the getting of the yummy object, that's, the creation, that's where time gets created, our perception of time gets created. And therefore our perception of dissatisfaction because of feeling separated from same with unpleasantness. Right? Some unpleasant sensation arises. And then the sense when we start to contract around it, push it away, and then fabricate this kind of uh, sense of when this is over, then everything will be okay. Then I'll be okay. And the se- again, the sense of time that's created in the relationship with, whether it's with the pleasant or with the unpleasant. Not so much with the neutral, because we're just not bothered. We don't create any relationship with the neutral. You've already forgotten about your elbows, right? So the compulsion and the sense of time go together. And, and a really strong part of the fabric of, uh, of our experience starts to get formed in that way. And we can notice that. We can, we can practice with that. We can observe the tightness around the unpleasant. We can observe the compulsion towards the pleasant. We can actually engage creatively with that. A lot of what we're doing in just being willing to just sit quietly, walk quietly, is actually creating that space for what's, in the Pali word is kanti, Means often translated patient endurance. Sounds like a miserable word. When I first heard that word in the monastery, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to patiently endure. I just want to blast a hole in consciousness and get through to the other side and have something fabulous happen. <laughs> but I really grew to love that term. Right? The fact that we're kind of, we're getting, we're registering the nature of experience. We're registering contact, the naturalness of sensory life. We're registering the pleasantness and unpleasantness. We're registering the, the habits of doing this and that with experience. And that registering has a potency and a beauty to it. So it's not about making it wrong. Oh, I shouldn't be um, you know, contracting around the nice, you know, the, the waiting for lunch. Or I shouldn't be contracting around the unpleasant knee sensation or whatever. No. It's rather this opportunity. Study. Engage. Find out. Open up. 
this seemingly um, default automatic thing or, or a way of experiencing time, space, self, world. Maybe those reference points aren't as um, solid as they appear. And if we don't engage there, if we don't actually notice the, 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 the pull for the pleasant or the pushing away of the unpleasant, then the grasping turns to clinging. Upadana in the Pali. Right? And that's where the sense of we increase the sort of solidity of our experience. Now there's not just a, a, a self trying to get somewhere in time. Now there's a self and the sense of space. The clinging to the thing starting to make it feel real. Lunch. Lunch has assumed this great, huge reality. Right? As if it's a thing. What, what, what's lunch? Like right now, where is lunch? Lunch? It's, kind of, it's just a, sign, it's a signifier, right? But they take the signifier and we kind of make something very real out of it. We start to feel dependent on it. Or with the unpleasant object, with the knee pain. Knee. Or the pain. Right? And we think, well, that's obvious. I know what pain is. I've got plenty of experience. I can tell you all about pain. But pain's a kind of, what's pain? I mean, the, it's a signifier, the word. When we actually get inside, like we've been encouraging each other to do, we find a sort of playing out of heat and pressure and density. Still unpleasant. And after some time, definitely unpleasant enough that it's wise actually to, to stop, change position, like we've been saying. But prior to that, the opportunity to, inv- to feel into the heat and pressure and density, to feel into the unpleasantness, to feel into the natural dislike of the unpleasant. And then to see, do we need to take it any further than that? Do we need to manufacture the complexity of time and space and problem? next step if we don't see the clinging if we don't see the craving if we don't realize how we're solidifying our experience into a me over here and a a set of experiences or objects pleasant or unpleasant to be gotten or gotten rid of interacted with negotiated with then bhava becoming then we're really on the wheel of samsara on our way to lunch or on our way to getting rid of this knee pain or on our way to whatever the pleasant or unpleasant object is. And when you're on your way, when you're on the bus, when you're on the wheel, does that wheel stop turning? Do you get to lunch and then say, okay, I have achieved that which I was always searching for. And everything drops away into utter, spacious ease and freedom. No. You get to lunch, and what happens? Contact. Right? And you just contact, because that's what life is. It's this playing out of experience. And then it has a flavor. Some, the, whatever arises is pleasant or unpleasant. You get to lunch, oh my God, it's boiled cabbage. <laughs> unpleasant. Then... <laughs> And then the craving, and then the clinging, and then the becoming. The becoming leads to more becoming, leads to more becoming. And if we look at our lives, we say, oh my God, that's my life. Trying to be a self, trying to get through time, trying to navigate space, and trying to become okay. And I'm sorry, friends, but nobody has ever managed to become okay. Okayness, freeness, ease with life, at home in the naturalness of experience is not the product of becoming. Okayness, ease, is not somewhere else in space and is not waiting for you in time. 
Okayness is being expressed. The freeness and naturalness of life is being constantly expressed in the contact. In body like this right now. Mind like this. World like this. It's naturally unfolding. The freeness of life is being expressed in the taste, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We're invited into an independence, not just from our compulsions and our views and our neurotic self-concern. But life, in each moment, in each expression, is inviting us into an independence from time even, and space, and becoming. Inviting us to a freeness that allows us to be here, in this contact, in this touch of life, in this free unfolding. So stay close, stay contactful, stay curious. Stay really interested in your experience, whatever its flavour. Whether you like it or not is very secondary. This moment is pregnant with possibility. There's an open offering For us to receive, for us to learn from, for us to rest into, for us to know our freedom of being. For may it be so for all of us and for each other and for all those we know and love. And for all beings who are crying out to just be at ease, to just know their okayness, to just find the sure heart's rest. Twenty minutes before the pleasant sensations of supper. Time to just stay close to the touch of life and however it's playing out for you. And then we'll have a sitting all together at seven o'clock this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.